brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. For the navalists out there, which is most of the listening audience of Midrats, I hope, uh, everybody should know that we're coming up on the 100-year anniversary of the Battle of Jutland. And when people think of the Battle of Jutland, uh, you think of some grainy black and white photographs or some, some great art that's taking place of these huge gray castles of steel up between Denmark and Britain uh, doing the mission that people had thought about and trained about and untold treasure was invested in being able to be prepared for. And even here, 100 years later, there's still a lot about everything from tactics to personnel programmatics on how you run a shipbuilding program and how you try to build the fleet of the future that we can still glean from uh, the, the years prior and the responses to the Battle of Jutland. And we're going to touch on that a bit, but we're also going to spend some time talking about those capital ships and their uh, related sisters, uh, the battleships. And we have just a, a great guest on board. Regulars of, of Midrats are very familiar with Rob Farley. Rob has put out a, his latest book, cryptically called The Battleship Book, which covers uh, everything you wanted to know about um, battleships, and we'll t- touch into it earlier on the show, but he's presented it in a slightly different way, and we'll let him explain it well. Just a little bit about Rob's background. He teaches defense and security courses um, at the Patterson School of Diplomacy at the University of Kentucky. You can also find his works online uh, where he blogs at Information Dissemination and Lawyers, Guns, and Money. In addition to his latest, The Battleship Book, he is also the author of the book that we discussed here on a previous episode of Midrats, Grounded, The Case for Abolishing the United States Air Force. Rob, welcome back to our Battle of Jutland edition of Midrats. Well, thank you for having me again. It's always a delight to be here, uh, and I'm happy here to have the opportunity to talk battleships. 
Yes, sir. It's uh, always a fun topic. It, it turns us into eight-year-old boys all over again. <laughs> but <laughs> as I kind of um, mentioned in, in the opening, I, what I wanted to come out the gate with, because at first blush, people think battleship book, and um, everybody has a variety of, of publications about battleships in their uh, in their library somewhere. But you've taken a little bit of a different approach to the battleship book. For a minute, uh, take a minute and outline for the listener what approach they'll find in the battleship book that they might not find in other books they have in their library. All right. So the, um, the battleship book is was chapter oriented, um, and I think that there are around seventy chapters. And each chapter is devoted to a specific battleship, um, and the chapters include some illustrations and some photographs. Uh, they include some technical data, but but pretty brief technical data boxes. Um, and so that would just be mainly the armament, the uh, uh, displacement, speed, and so forth. Um, and uh, the ideas that, that Anime and Wada wanted to do when talking about these battleships was to think about them less as technical and industrial achievements, although they certainly are that, but as political and strategic objects, right? And so the question that often motivated me was, you know, what, what drove a government to uh, be able to devote some tremendous amount of national treasure to the construction uh, of this ship. Right? And, and the, the smallest battleship ever built, uh, or at least the smallest dreadnought battleship, is around 17,000 tons, and so that's larger than the, the Zumwalt-class destroyer. Um, so these are immense vessels and deeply expensive vessels. And so I wanted to ask, you know, how, how do governments go about naming these ships? You know, why do these ships get the names that they do? What were they intended to do? What sort of message were they supposed to send to uh, foreign militaries, to their own people, to people around the world? Uh, I selected the battleships mainly based on which ones had the most interesting stories. Um, and in some cases, that meant taking some pretty obscure battleships. Um, and I wanted to take a battleship from, from every country in the world that owned battleships at one time or another. And so Chile and Argentina and so forth are, are represented. Um, and sometimes that meant very familiar ships that have been uh, received a lot of attention, like the, the war spit and so forth. Um, and sometimes it meant leaving some of those out. I did not do the Bismarck, although I did a number of ships that, um, that uh, were associated with the Bismarck's demise. Um, but really what I wanted to do was tell interesting stories about interesting ships that had a political and strategic aspect to it. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the topics you raised in the book. One, one is that there were, there, there are pre-dreadnoughts, there are dreadnoughts, there are battle cruisers, and there are battleships. Could you kind of work through the difference between a battle cruiser, a battleship, a, a, you know, the dreadnought, and what the pre-dreadnoughts were about? Sure. So the the battleship kind of takes uh, a, a basic template form in um, the uh, late 1880s, early 1890s, uh, and that's a ship of around 12,000 tons that can make around 18 knots, a little bit slower towards the beginning of the period and a little bit faster towards the end. Um, they all, in just about every country, look pretty much the same, uh, you know, with the exception of the American ships, which have which have cage masts. Um, and each of them carries a turret forward and a turret aft, uh, a, a, a twin turret forward and a twin turret aft. And that is a pre-dreadnought battleship. Um, and the, uh, there was, a, there was a, just a large degree of uniformity across the world's navies uh, about what these ships looked like and how they performed. Um, so Russian ones were not that different than Japanese or American or British. Um, what, what 
sort of creates a transformative situation is is what happens in in 1905 when uh, Jackie Fisher um, decides to really shake up uh, the Admiralty and he really wants to also shake up the way that uh, the British Navy is approaching naval architecture. Um, and he has two ideas. Um, one of the, the the one that was really dear to him was this ship called the Battle Cruiser, and the Battle Cruiser would be a, an all big gun ship. So the, the pre dreadnoughts had mixed uh, secondary or very heavy secondary armaments that were mixed with their main armaments. The battle cruiser dispensed with the uh, lower calibers, and so they only had 12-inch guns. And they would have about eight 12-inch guns, and that the first one of those was HMS Invincible. Um, but because of politics and other associated issues uh, in the Admiralty, the uh, Fisher's second project, which was HMS Dreadnought, actually got off the board first. And HMS Dreadnought was very much like other uh, battleships, except that it was um, it carried 10 12-inch guns as opposed to the four 12-inch guns that, that previous ships had carried. Um, but it did that on a, essentially the same displacement. So you have an 18,000-ton ship going out and competing with 16,000-ton ships, except the 18,000-ton ship now has 10 12-inch guns uh, as opposed to four that every foreign contemporary was carrying. Um, and so it simply revolutionized naval architecture, the existence of Dreadnought. Um, and every ship, every battleship built thereafter was called uh, a Dreadnought. And you know, super Dreadnoughts come along a little bit later. And then finally, fast battleships uh, debate over what the first fast battleship was. And fast battleships have essentially become the state of the art uh, as we get closer to World War II. In the period of before the Battle of Jutland leading up to the Jutland, it really is amazing. And I, I think the, the naval developments from a, a technology and a capability point of view reflected a lot of what we saw um, in the, the first two decades of the 20th century. Uh, just incredible each, each year, incredible advances. But there was um, two events in 1905, uh, May through October, that really kind of set the stage for the the battleship era that emerged in World War One. Just uh, an incredible year, 1905. What were those those two events? And you've already touched on one. And how quickly did the the ripples of the May and October 2005 timeframe did that impact all nations equally, or did did some nations really take on board what was happening faster than others? Well, so I think the, the second event in 2005 that you're talking about is the, the Battle of Tsushima. Am, I, am I guessing that one right? Yeah, 1905. Yeah, um, May, May, was the, uh, the May was the Battle of Tsushima with the Russians and the uh, Japanese, and then October, of course, when uh, uh, we got the glorious dreadnought. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, the Battle of Tsushima it was sort of the, the paragon of, of this uh, particular battleship type. Right? You had um, a number of Russian pre-dreadnoughts squaring off against a um, smaller number of Japanese dreadnoughts. And the Japanese uh, use uh, superior speed, uh, um, excellent gunnery, and um, just really uh, fantastic command decisions, right? I mean, Togo was really the 20th century state of the art uh, for, for admiralty. Um, and using mainly long-range gunnery, the Japanese managed to completely annihilate a uh, larger Russian force, right, where they sink almost every ship and they capture almost every other ship uh, uh, in the fleet. And 
you know, that does have an immense ripple effect right away um, because it indicates that, um, or it helps to indicate that the battleship is really the dominant form. Um, and so the big gun form is really the dominant form. And there were armored cruisers uh, at Tsushima as well, but they played less of a role. Um, and that it was really the big guns that were critical to victory, right? That, that the, the decisive blows were being struck by um, the 12-inch guns on either side. What that helped to indicate to naval architects, and there had been people working along these lines previously in the United States and in Japan, was that this heavy gun armament was really what was going to be um, central to uh, ship design in the future. Um, and, you know, like I said, the, the Japanese had their own projects for all big gun ships, even before Tsushima, and the Americans also had some of these projects, but it was the British who really had the industrial capacity and Fisher's vision um, to, to pull this off and to pull it off very, very rapidly um, in a way that would, uh, that, that, drove this revolution in naval architecture around the world. And that, I think you know, as I, as I suggested, you know, Dreadnought immediately renders um, uh, the, all of the other battleships in the world obsolete by her construction. And I, th I think you point out that it wasn't that, that Dreadnought uh, required innovative technology. It required putting together existing technology in a new way. Right. Right. What we call architectural innovation, right? So, um, uh, use of turbines, which increased her speed, which meant she was faster than any of the, the pre-dreadnoughts, um, and uh, improved fire control, um, improved armor, um, which when finally put together into this form, and other navies, again, had been hinting at it. So even the Austrians had been, had been improving the speed of their ships, and the French had been playing around with this stuff. But it was the, it was the, the British that really put all of this together at once. Eagle One, did you still have a question? No, I I, I just asked that question. <laughs> okay, I thought you were just doing a pre pre injection. Well, I wanted to go back before we get too far away from it, um, because it, it's something that you you do hear about, and you, you mention it as well early on in the book, and uh, it, it was a no small factor in the Washington Naval, Naval Treaty, and that is the quote vast store of national wealth that these fleets of pre-dreadnoughts and dreadnoughts um, represented. You know, we, we talk now about how our, our latest aircraft carrier, the Ford class, I think the latest figure of the day is around $13 billion. Uh, We're not the first people to have capital ships that when you look at them, you have to blink a couple of <clears throat> times to realize how expensive they were. And what type of impact did these naval races and in the, in the, the need these nations felt to build these uh, hugely expensive for the, for the nations uh, a century ago ships. And w did some nations get impacted economically or governmentally more than others in an overreach? Oh, example? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's no, there's no question. Um, yeah. The, the construction of a major Navy of, uh, you know, steel battleships um, was a, a tremendous economic undertaking. And there was in some countries, I mean, especially in both Germany and the United Kingdom, um, that was able to happen because uh, there were successful coalitions of industrialists and uh, what amount to foreign policy hawks, right? And this is the, sort of the famous um, uh, Iron and Rye coalition in uh, Germany, but you have other similar coalitions in the United Kingdom with workers and, and all of these others that allow this uh, tremendous amount of state funds. 
Um, and there were uh, several other countries out there that wanted to say no or that did say no. Um, there was a huge debate in the United States whether over whether to pursue um, a dreadnought, uh, a fleet of dreadnoughts to match the British. And uh, it was in Sacred Vessels, which is oh, Robert O'Connor, I believe, um, who, uh, where it's, it's mentioned a, a, a congressman from Mississippi proposed that uh, we, we build a battleship, name her the Skeered of Nothing, uh, and uh, put the president on deck and then have a firing competition against dreadnought. Um, and that was as controversial as, as this sort of thing was, because it was a just tremendous amount of national treasure. Um, and there were some countries that tried to join the race and, and got halfway there or failed. Um, the Brazilians were attempting to build a, a, a large fleet of dreadnoughts and figured out halfway through, as they're figuring out now, that they didn't have any money. Um, and so they had to cancel one of theirs, and they stopped paying their sailors, and their sailors turned the guns of the battleships on Rio de Janeiro. Um, which you know created no end of troubles. The Argentines bought battleships from the United States and then tried to sell them to, uh, or at least talked about selling them to Germany or Japan before World War One. And so the United States had to step up and insist that this not happen. Um, and certainly after World War One, um, when especially the British and the Japanese were contemplating massive battle fleets that were well beyond the economic means of either country. Um, the, the Washington Naval Treaty was really uh, what stepped in and saved um, those two countries in particular from economic ruin, from, from the need to compete with one another over the construction of these, uh, as Robert Massey calls them, uh, castles of steel. When, when uh, these countries are building, uh, let's take the United Kingdom, where they, they've, they've, they've got the dreadnought, and then they begin, I gather, a rather large shipbuilding program. And and what was the what was the end that they had in mind as they built additional battle cruisers and and uh, dread, post dreadnought dreadnoughts? I mean, what the, what the British uh, hoped to do and what they were pursuing, they didn't really have any end in mind beyond um, the necessity to have a sufficient advantage over the Germans in the North Sea. Um, and just to give a little bit of, uh, especially the way that, that the British and Germans in particular approach this in the years prior to World War I is staggering from our vantage point in the 21st century. Um, from, from 1905 until 1916, which is of course when the Battle of Jutland happens, uh, the United Kingdom builds, let's see, there were 37 capital ships, 37 British capital ships, at Jutland, all of them had been built since 1905. Um, so that's, that's 37 capital ships in 11 years, and four or five more would enter service within the next, uh, within the months after Jutland. Um, so you're thinking about 40 capital ships, and the Germans, more than 20 capital ships, are built in exactly the same period. Um, and this is a level of construction that is unmatched anywhere except perhaps in the United States during during uh, World War II, right? Uh, the devotion of this much national treasure to the construction of these fleets. Um, and so it's, it's, it's enormously important, in, uh, especially in German and British industrial circles, the construction of these fleets of, of what are you know, remarkably advanced and sophisticated warships that enter the line immediately uh, and enter battle months after uh, they have been completed. Let's talk a little bit as well about the uh, battle cruiser. Uh, the and I guess if you wanted to touch on um, how that 
capability, our ability was was demonstrated in Jutland. I, I, you know, feel free, obviously. But what was the the idea behind the battle cruiser, and did the the theory match the application and the experience? Um. Yeah, uh, so the the idea behind Fisher's original idea, Fisher originally liked the idea of the battlecruiser more than he liked the idea of the battleship, right? He wanted big, fast ships that could hit hard, and he wasn't particularly concerned about them hanging around and getting hit. Um, and so Fisher did not particularly, did not have the, you know, or maybe you could even say he had a modern sensibility about uh, about uh, resilience, right? That it, it was more important to strike first, uh, and then survivability is something that only happens when when something's gone wrong. Um, so the idea for the battlecruiser was it would be a ship that could punch harder than it could get hit back. I mean, that's basically the definition of a battlecruiser. It's something that's not armored against its own weapons. Um, and so as the battlecruiser began to be employed, they were employed for lots of stuff that you need big, fast ships to do, right, to hunt down raiders. Um, and so they sank uh, 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 Admiral Graf von Spees. Uh, squadron at the Battle of Falklands, and they hunted down uh, the German battlecruiser Goben. Um, scout for the battle fleet, uh, be able to react quickly to threats as they develop, and so it was always the battlecruisers in the British case that were sent after um, whenever the Germans were uh, attempting to bombard some part of the British coast, the battlecruisers would be there. Um, what goes wrong, really, with the battlecruisers? There's, there's some question about how we define wrong in this case. Um, but, but what goes wrong at Jutland really is that there are a variety of problems with British battlecruisers, some of which have to do with the fact that they are armored like eggshells, and some of which have to do with uh, a variety of weapons handling problems that cause the loss of two ships in the, in the first minutes of the battle. Um, where uh, the German battlecruisers are pounding the British battlecruisers. And even though the Germans have, or the British have an advantage in numbers, the Germans score two huge victories in the first in the first moments of, of the fight, and they almost score a third. The battlecruiser Lion almost explodes, um, in, uh, and that was uh, the flagship of the battlecruiser squadron. Almost explodes, um, and then two more battlecruisers would be lost: one German and one British. The Invincible, uh, the the not aptly named Invincible, would be would be lost, um, and that creates a lot of questions about why these ships were in the front lines receiving lots and lots of shell fire. Um, and the the answer to that question is they were there because they were the only ships that could be there. Right? That, that um, the dreadnoughts couldn't be there in time to do all of the things that the battle cruisers can do. Um, but it did certainly the Battle of Jutland changed uh, a lot of, and I think probably in a lot of, in some ways, which were not fair, um, changed some ideas about what the future of um, the battle cruiser should look like and about, about whether the battle cruiser was a useful form. Now, as it turns out, pretty much everyone solves these problems by making the, the next round of battleships simply uh, uh, fast battleships, which have engines that are strong enough to, um, uh, to generate enough uh, force to be able to build a very fast, very heavily armed, and heavily armored ship. Um, and so the battlecruiser, in a sense, becomes obsolete when the fast battleship comes online. Um, but at the same time, the, the battlecruisers that survive until World War II end up being vastly more useful than uh, the battleships 
that end that end up surviving until World War II because they're fast. They can go and do shore bombardment. They can escort aircraft carriers. Um, they can do all of these things that the very slow battleships that survived World War One can't do. Um, and so the battlecruiser really finds a second life. Even the very old battlecruisers find a second life uh, in World War II as as very useful utility utility vessels. All right, it, it, let's let's set the stage a little bit for the Battle of Jutland. You got you got the Kaiser sitting in Germany, and he's he's trying to map out uh, some kind of naval strategy. And it, what what exactly is he doing? I mean, he's got he's building battlecruisers, he's building battleships, uh, but he he knows he can't compete with the with the with the uh, British Navy, Royal Navy, one to one. What what what's going through his mind? So there are two things that the Germans wanted to accomplish with their battle fleet. And the first thing they wanted to accomplish um, was having dominance over the French and the Russians, and they accomplished that pretty quickly. Um, the second thing they want to accomplish is they, they want to um, deter uh, Britain from becoming involved in any war. Um, and their concept here is we will build a fleet large enough so that the uh, British are uh, too frightened of going to war with us because they might lose their fleet. Now, as you, I'm sure you know, this kind of logic of military procurement doesn't work well, right? Because the immediate British response is just to build more and more and more battleships. Um, and the British, in fact, can build battleships faster than the Germans can. Um, and so the entire political project is a failure from the get-go because the vulnerability actually forces the British to become more aggressive and more hostile to the Germans than they had been in the first place. Um, now, once we actually finally get to war, there was certainly a recognition on the German side that they couldn't compete um, with the British. Uh, they couldn't compete uh, either in terms of the full battle fleets, and in a lot of cases, they couldn't even really compete on a ship-to-ship basis. Right? By Jutland, the British have dreadnoughts, super dreadnoughts, that are clearly superior to the best German battleships. Um, and the German concept is to uh, isolate and destroy parts of the um, parts of the British battle fleet. And so that's what many of the actions in the war are. It's lure some portion of the battle fleet into the maws of the rest of the German Navy where it could be destroyed piecemeal. And that is what they try to do at Jutland. They try to drag uh, Beatty's battlecruisers, Admiral David Beatty's battlecruisers, under the guns of uh, the battleships of, of the high seas fleet and thus reduce the British, uh, the British advantage in the North Sea. When you look at the the experience and the reputation and the ethos of the Royal Navy prior to the Battle of Jutland, and the fact that you know Germany as a nation really only came together after the Franco-Prussian War, which was what forty years before, and the the Germans uh, forty and change, and the Germans never really had um, much of a maritime uh, history and background and ethos compared to the Royal Navy. But when you look at the Battle of Jutland, depending upon which ledger sheet you're looking at, from a strictly tactical point of view, the Germans arguably outperformed on a ship-by-ship basis in many ways. What was it that, that gave the, uh, the Germans uh, the, the end result that they did that on a paper ledger point of view you wouldn't expect? Because um, it, it had to have been more than just blind luck. 
Right, right. And, and uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting point talking about the German maritime tradition and, and comparing it with the British because many of the, of the German ships are – Named after named after army commanders, right? Uh, the the uh, earliest uh, Imperial Navy is staffed in many parts by uh, German army commanders who are being transferred over um, to create this navy. And so the the maritime traditions are much different. Um, the Germans succeed at Jutland uh, in the early stages for uh, a few reasons. Um, one reason, which we alluded to earlier, is that um, the British battle cruisers had some very clear, very definite technical shortcomings, and there were also some weapons handling issues um, and that caused that caused the really the two the biggest losses in the battle. Um, and second, and uh, um, uh, Andrew Gordon has uh, in his fantastic Rules of the Game really discusses this. There were uh, other a variety of other signaling problems that uh, existed in the Royal Navy that made it difficult for the squadrons to work together uh, in cohesion. Um, and this was something that the Germans didn't have so much of a problem with because, you know, in part because they had fewer ships. Um, and so it was an easier management problem. Um, but it was really those, those two issues with the uh, Royal Navy that led them to have the high losses in the early stages of the battle. Um, now, you know, the German gunnery was also fantastic, so that was that was another thing. Um, I su- I suspect that, and I you know I know some war gamers have worked this through lots of ways. My suspicion is that nine out of ten times you fight the Battle of Jutland, um, the British are going to win on uh, on the numbers, and most of the time it's not even going to be close. Uh, I mean the the Germans barely escaped annihilation on several different occasions during the battle through just sheer luck uh, managing to escape uh, annihilation. Um, and so uh, that this happened to be the one where they really, everything broke for them and it seemed as about as possible as it could have for them. Um, but they were able to take advantage and they were able to escape and, and survive a much larger force. Eagle one. Nope, got to hit that. Got to hit that mic button. Uh, <laughs> we got the Royal Navy. Hang, got the Royal Navy hanging around in Scapa Flow. We've got uh, we've got the the Germans who are decided to to venture out in this in this scheme they had to entrap to uh, trap the battle cruisers you discussed. And then there's then the, behind all this, there's also some. The Royal Navy has some intelligence about what the the Germans were up to. So it kind of discussed that, and then this worked through how this battle developed a little bit. And we got, I'm sure we have a lot of follow-on questions after that. Sure. So um, the I, I and I know there have been plans in uh, in. Uh, various kinds of plans for a long time to, to try to put together a Jutland movie. And I think that at one point, Ben Kingsley was supposed to play Jellica, which would have just been fantastic. But, um, so the uh, British do detect um, uh, through intelligence and variety of other means that uh, the German battle cruisers are leaving port, port and will be sorting. Um, and so the British battle cruisers uh, sortie in response and supporting the British battle cruisers are the four fast battleships of the Queen Elizabeth class, which are, are four ships that end up playing a large role in World War II as well. Uh, the uh, German battle cruiser, the British battle cruisers intercept the German battle cruisers and begin pursuing them. 
and has had, as the, was the case in almost every other situation, when the battle cruisers had met each other, the Germans began to flee when they saw the British, um, and the uh, British began to pursue. But in this particular case, the uh, German uh, high seas fleet had, in fact, sortied under uh, uh, Admiral Reinhard Scheer, um, and the Germans drew the British battle cruisers directly into a trap. Um, and so the six battle cruisers and four fast battleships were drawn essentially under the guns of the uh, German battle fleet. Now, um, these battle cruisers take a pounding, and the fast battleships take a pounding. Right, the, the you lose the British lose two battle cruisers in the very early stages of the battle. They very near, nearly lose HMS Lion. They very nearly lose HMS Forspit um, because she has a rudder problem and she circles under German guns for um, for uh, two cycles. Um, but one of the reasons that the British were willing to be risk acceptant with their battle cruisers and allow them to to come under these guns, they were. You know, problems in communication, and there were problems with Beatty perhaps being a, a trifle too aggressive. But it was because they knew that the Grand Fleet had set sail. So uh, intelligence had uh, meant that essentially, um, while the British or the Germans were trying to draw the British into a trap, they themselves were being drawn into a much larger trap. Um, and so, as the battle cruisers and fast battleships are steaming away and trying to escape the German dreadnoughts. Suddenly on the horizon appears uh, the 24 dreadnoughts and three battle cruisers of the Grand Fleet led by Admiral Jellico. Um, and that essentially just transforms the situation uh, for the Germans, right? Seconds before, or minutes before anyway, they had been uh, you know, attempting to score a massive victory over a portion of the fleet. And now the entire German fleet was in jeopardy of being annihilated. One of the interesting things, and... Um... If people have their copy of the book, you can see it on page page 158. You've got some of the classic maps of the Battle of uh, of Jutland. Now, one of the more interesting parts of the battle is uh, Shear's turns that he had. His, his He would turn, run away, come back, turn, and run away. Well, when you look at the British lines, it's almost straight out of your tactics manual, how you want to line your ships up, how you want to go. Was there, was there something about the, the, the German tactics and operational plan that uh, would lead Scheer to, to do this kind of, of deception and surprise moving? Or do you think this is more of a case, and do the record show this is more of a case, of just a, a commander in an incredibly tight spot just responding at the moment for what he thinks might be able to give him an edge and get his opponent on a, on a uh, weak foot. There is there is a lot of work on exactly um, what Shear, and there's still a lot of debate on exactly what Shear was planning to do and was thinking about doing. And, and um, you know, Massey suggests that uh, you know there was sort of this confusion uh, to Shear, and he wasn't sure exactly which way he should go and what he was doing. Um, you know, the Germans had well practiced this turn, this 180 degree, uh, uh, essentially parallel turn for every, the reasons you would imagine they would, because they thought that at some point in the future, they might get uh, caught in an extremely bad situation. They might have to turn uh, and, and move in the opposite direction immediately. Um, and the uh, British fleet, the Grand Fleet, 
deploys beautifully into a um, uh, into uh, from divisions into a main battle line, just just a, very capably. Um, and uh, Jellicoe makes the decision to essentially put himself between the Germans uh, and their home bases. Uh, she responds with the first turn, and then he makes another turn, um, which brings the uh, 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 fleet back under the guns of the Grand Fleet, and then there's another turn after that. Um, any kind of simulations we do about this and any ways that we're, we're, we're trying to evaluate um, the decision-making from this point where we are now run into a problem that's very hard to simulate um, the literal fog of battle that had descended over Jutland. That, I mean, you'd had so much ordnance and so many shells going off that the, in the entire uh, battlescape was covered with fog. And so it was much more, it was, it's easy for us to plot these ships on a, uh, on a map and say that, uh, you know, it was obviously a terrible idea to go here or here or here. Um, when in fact, uh, it was very hard for the commanders really to get a sense of where they were um, and it was hard for them to see the, uh, the opponent. So sometimes you'd have ships that weren't very far at all, but they couldn't see each other because of uh, the clouds of smoke that were roiling across the battlefield, sometimes from the sinking ships that were, were, were still there. Um, certainly, Scheer, Scheer believed that he had, given, he had lost an opportunity to destroy the Grand Fleet while it was deploying from divisions into battle line. Um, there's almost no reason to think that Shear was right about that. Um, that it, it's just very hard to imagine how, what the high seas fleet could have done to the grand fleet at that moment that was not going to get it simply destroyed. Um, and so, you know, in that sense, whether it was indecision or going back and forth or whatever, um, Shear left himself in a position where essentially the entire fleet was at risk, but he could still at least hope to escape. So, um, we've got we've got these battleships. They're fighting it out. They don't. And unlike our modern ships, there's no radar. There's no as you, as you were saying. There's no way to tell uh, except visually where the other vessels are and what they're doing. And at, at this point, Jellicoe's got his fleet uh, set out in a, in a battle line, perfectly deployed, and Shears doing this crazy dance around. Where do we go from there? What happens next? Well. Um, so at one point the the Germans the Germans turn away um, and this is one of the the, um, the critical moments um, the uh, Germans turn away and um, are, are are attempting to escape uh, the British battle line um, and Shear orders uh, uh, Hipper's battle cruisers which have been the first ships that were engaged in this um, he orders Hipper's battle cruisers. Uh, and, and to attack the British line, to attack into the British line. And so you can imagine this situation here where you have, uh, you only have four battlecruisers left. Um, they have all been battered for the entire day. And so many of them are nearly in sinking position already. Um, and they're joined by a number of torpedo boats. And the idea is to, um, uh, you know, have some sort of uh, fighting uh, fighting uh, moment to, to, to ward off the Grand Fleet before it can destroy Shear's entire line. And the fateful decision that's made here um, by, the, uh, by Jellicoe is to turn away 
uh, from the German attack rather than turn into the German attack. Um, and this is what allows uh, Scheer to disengage for that moment and then essentially uh, survive until nightfall, at which point the German fleet um, is able to escape through the night. And of all the things that Jellicoe has been criticized for, uh, is probably the most deserving is this, is this turn away. Um, and he turned away because he was afraid of a torpedo attack against his dreadnoughts. Um, and that's not an unreasonable fear. And given the British strategic situation where they have huge advantage anyway, um, it's not absurd to be concerned about this. But the, most analysis that I've seen, that they really missed an opportunity to uh, just utterly lay waste, at least to the German battlecruiser battle squadron and possibly to the rest of the fleet. Um, and so it's on this point that the biggest critiques of Jellicoe are, are heaped, right, that he was um, insufficiently aggressive about pursuing the German fleet, even when it might have meant that some of his dreadnoughts took a torpedo. But look, you have a lot of dreadnoughts. Your point here is to destroy German dreadnoughts, right? So if one of them might take a torpedo, um, it's much easier for me to say that, of course, than it is to actually give that order in 1916. Yeah, it's always easier to to, to look back and uh, uh, second guess uh, in, in two hours, but people have two minutes to do. Uh, you, you mentioned something that uh, I just wanted to touch on touch on in a second here. Is you mentioned the the German torpedo boats, some of which uh, you know were the equivalent of the uh, the British destroyers, but there were significant numbers of non-capital ships in the Battle of Jutland. Uh, you had um, almost 100 light cruisers and destroyers on the Brit side, and a, a little bit less than that, uh, light cruisers and torpedo boats on the, on the German side. Were, were those fully utilized, and did they really have any impact um, as the big ships were pounding it out? Um, they played a big, pretty big role in the scouting, um, and so, um, and they may have. I mean, there's, there are some theories that that suggest that Sheer was um, specifically uh, uh, concerned about uh, the loss of the. I want to say it was the Wiesbaden, um, the uh, uh, loss of the light cruiser Wiesbaden, and so uh, sort of wanted his dreadnoughts to organize around that. Which is, and it's, it's an argument that has never made sense. Um, but uh, surely, yes, you have all of these light cruisers and destroyers just and, – and, and in most accounts of the battle, it, it, it's almost it, – it feels almost like uh, – let's see if a way to phrase it um, – you know, Hector is fighting Achilles, and there were also lots of other battles going on at the same time. But nobody cared about any of the other battles. It's just Hector versus Achilles, right? And that's the focus on the, uh, on the, the battleships against each other. Um, one reason why the fighting of the smaller ships probably mattered less at Jutland than it would have um, in a later engagement was the state of communications technology, um, that it was harder for these uh, smaller ships, which were doing a lot of the reconnaissance. And the, you know, the smaller ships had a sense of where the German fleet was from the very start. Um, but it was much more difficult for them to have a... Uh, uh, to give the commanders a full picture of the battle um, because the communications technology was just not to the place where a, a light cruiser or destroyer could then relay to Jellicoe perfect information about the state of the, the, uh, the, state of the German battle line. Um, and so, and that's something that would 
change a lot in World War II. It certainly changed after World War II. Um, but you know, what, what's really happening here is these small ships are fighting each other, and not a lot of them really have a ton of influence on what the uh, what the 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 capital ships are doing, right? Not other than with torpedoes, but there aren't a lot of torpedo hits recorded in the battle. Um, and so you, you primarily have two different battles being fought at the same time, one with the capital ships and one with the smaller ships. Well, a- after Shear manages to withdraw into the cover of darkness, it seems like fairly uh, shortly thereafter, Jellico comes under fire from all sorts of people saying, you know, he was a chicken. He didn't aggressively pursue the enemy. Um, uh, you know, a whole bunch of stuff like that. Uh, and, and, and I think, uh, um, that there's, you know, some people have called them hit jobs. And what we have a question from one of the, uh, the listeners on the, on our chat room asking about Admiral Bacon's theory of a cover up hit job on Jellico mm-hmm. and the Jutland scandal. Uh, what, what's your opinion on, on that? It was, was, you know, was, was, was Bacon, right? Was there some kind of, is Jellico being treated unfairly or, or fairly? You know, it seems that there have been, uh, as as there will be in uh, every every case of a, of a, um, a historical event of this large, there have been several waves of um, of historical revision with respect to Beatty and Jellicoe. Um The first one, uh, as you suggest, I think went very badly for Jellico. Right? It's you know you had them in your trap, and how did you let them escape? Um, and then over the years, um, uh, there has there has been there was this shift that sort of recognized um, how difficult the decisions were made, and that recognized also the strategic situation that that uh, Jellicoe was not being conservative with, with his ships just for the heck of it. Right, the strategic situation suggested that conservatism was ideal. Right, you know he the the he could destroy the entire German navy, or he could let the German navy escape. Um, and that wouldn't change the strategic situation. Um, and so his decisions were based on a sensible assessment of that uh, situation. Um, I think that more recently, uh, and, and I think, that, well, so that interpretation took hold, especially because people came to really sort of dislike David Beatty um, and dislike his personal characteristics, and historians seemed for a long time to dislike him. Um, lately, I think that there's probably some indication that they were changing again, that uh, there's this recognition that whatever the problems were um, with uh, the battle cruiser squadron and Beatty is, re- is responsible for some of those, but he's even responsible and in in potentially responsible in some sense for the weapons handling issues. Um, he did his job, right? He got there and he drew the high seas fleet into the maw of the grand fleet. And that was supposed to be his job. And if, the British had then blown up if they had then sunk 15 German dreadnoughts, which was plausible um, at the worst point of the battle. No one would really remember uh, the loss of the battle cruisers. The battle cruisers, the loss of the battle cruisers, would have been accepted as a as a necessary evil at the beginning of the battle. Um, and so the key problem again is that Jellico was was simply not sufficiently aggressive. And this is this is a critique that I have I have become more sympathetic with um, that that Jellico. To put it differently, I think that if you put Togo or Halsey or um, other great admirals of the 20th century into this situation, then then they would not have let the Germans escape in the way that Jellicoe did. 
And this might uh, be digging a little bit too far back, but um, uh, our friend Claude Barabe, he asked an interesting, interesting question um, to me on Twitter that uh, you know, ties, in, ties into what you were talking about, you know, Jellico um, not being aggressive enough. And he wondered whether you know, Jellico's knowledge of the Russian Admiral Makarov's death whether you know that experience may have influenced Jellico in his hesitancy to to be more aggressive. Um, I know less. I know less about this than than Claude does. I mean, I know I know I know some of it, um, and so I can't I can't really speak authoritatively uh, about it. Um, the difference here, I think, um, would be that that. The turn towards the Japanese from Makarov went everything that happened with the Russians against the Japanese went poorly. You know, there was not a decision that went well um, for the Russians against the Japanese in 1904, 1905. Um, and what Makarov didn't really have was the degree of um, the degree of uh, material superiority that Jellicoe enjoyed at that moment. Um, you know, Jellicoe has a massive advantage when this decision is being made. There are 20 German battleships left, and he has over 30 of his own uh, battleships. Um, and his battleships are better than the German battleships. They're more modern. They carry heavier guns. Um, and so even to the extent that – and I don't know how much of the historical record – certainly Jellicoe, I think, was, was aware. I don't know. It would, I, I would like a better sense of how this knowledge was adopted into the Royal Navy, how these lessons were adopted into the Royal Navy. You know, it still seems to me that the extent of the British material advantage at this moment still suggests uh, that aggressiveness should be the direction to go. Um, but I can't say, you know, as Claude points out, right, I can't say that the, that that Jellicoe uh, didn't decide or decided to turn the way he did because of Bakarov. It's entirely possible. Well, uh, somebody named Robert Farley wrote a piece for the National Interest called uh, "Did the Battle of Jutland Really Matter?" Um, and you know, and, and look at this question. You, you, I, I uh, will defer to you, of course, but um, the, 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 you know, the, the battle is indecisive. Six thousand British mm -hmm. sailors die, mostly apparently due to ammo mishandling issues on their own ship, and a couple of thousand Germans die. The German fleet retreats to its home port and never really. Uh, the surface fleet never really engages in the war again, as I understand it. So uh, strategically, Jellicoe wins a, a great victory, and the, the loss of 6,000 or even 8,000 men uh, during that time of World War One. You know, I mean, that was an afternoon at Verdun, as far as I can tell. So it's not it's it's the loss of the of the of the ships, but they they did balk. You know, the the Brits retain control of the North Sea. So. Uh, and and I guess the other question I have is, did this change? This is there's leading to this down the road. The the the, the Germans really get into U-boats. So in World War II, uh, I don't remember them. They had some smaller pocket battleships like the, the I think with the Bismarck and some other ones, but they were never really a, a interested in being a big surface force in those in World War II. But but boy, they went big time with the U-boats. Did did the Battle of Jutland? Do you think directly affect? Uh, their uh, strategy in World War II, as far as uh, being a, a U-boat nation. Um, 
Well, certainly, the Battle, I think the Battle of Jutland definitely had an effect on how on, on the decision at, in 1917 to return to unrestricted submarine warfare. Um, you know, the Germans did in uh, in 1937-38-39. They envisioned building a large surface fleet with powerful uh, battleships, um, and they felt that they could successfully compete with the British if they were given enough time. And remember, many of the British battleships were old, and so. They only felt that they really needed to, to build up in numbers that were equal to the newer, faster British battleships. It's just that the war happened before put that plan really into effect. And so they, they were forced into, or at least felt themselves to have been forced into um, uh, the submarine strategy. You know, uh, as anybody who writes for a magazine knows, you never get to choose your, uh, you never get to choose your uh, title uh, for the articles. Um, and I think a better title would, would have been something along the lines of what would have happened if the Germans had won. And so I, what I work through in that article is, you know, coming up with a plausible scenario for plausible best case scenario for the Germans, um, which my thinking was around is that they plausibly could have destroyed 15 um, at the extreme of plausibility could have destroyed 15 uh, British dreadnoughts uh, to no losses of their own. Um, and then how does that change the rest of the war? Um, and really, the, the way that the only way that it seemed to me that a German victory at Jutland could have changed the war is by forestalling the uh, decision to move to unrestricted, or unrestricted submarine warfare. Right? If the Germans still had sufficient confidence in their surface fleet um, that they don't decide to uh, bring the United States into the war by resorting to unrestricted submarine warfare, um, then that potentially keeps the United States out of the war. It, um, it uh, allows the spring 1918 offensive to succeed. Um, but other than that, it was very hard for me to see how even a German victory would have substantially transformed the strategic situation. Let's look at the, um, the impact um, a century later on Jutland for you know, maybe three different audiences here. Uh, even though it was 100 years ago and we don't have battleships anymore and neither does anybody else and there, there aren't any in the, in the building ways, you know, for, a, for the junior officer, uh, for the admiral, and for those that are involved in programmatics, i.e. You know, building the, the Navy that will be afloat in 2030, what do you think are, are some of the, the, the above-the-fold takeaways from Jutland that uh, still apply today that people should keep in the back of their mind? I think that we have to take extraordinarily great care um, when we are making long-range projections about what our, what our halls are, are going to be and how they are going to serve. Um, there were the oldest capital ships at the Battle of Jutland were laid down in 1903. Uh, and so they were 13 years old, and actually probably closer to 11 years old when they were they were constructed when they were, from when they were commissioned. Um, and the capital ships that were a decade old at the battle were hopelessly obsolete. Um, they were they, the Germans referred to them as coffin ships. They were pre-dreadnoughts that had been that had been stuck at the end of the battle line. Um, and so you have this situation at Jutland where you have a, a huge number of ships that have all been built within the lifespan of a 10 year old boy. Um, and we today, when we are thinking about our halls and what we want them to do, and we're thinking about our force structure and what we want it to do, um, we have these time horizons where I, I don't 
know what the how how long the SSBX is supposed to last. But somebody recently had a you know a clever title: "This submarine is quieter than you can imagine and will la- and will live longer than you do." Um, and the Gerald R. Ford will be in service when I die. Right? I don't regard myself as an old man, right? But our but our expectation is that the Gerald R. Ford will be in service when I die. Um, and the, I think that the the lesson that Jutland really has for us that is that these revolutionary moments can come very very quickly and they can overturn everything um, in ways that we we don't anticipate and that perhaps are are impossible to anticipate. And so there should be there should be a, a degree of humility and a degree of flexibility um, with respect to how we're approaching um, these decisions about about buying things that we envision will serve us for for decades. Um, and that's probably the biggest lesson to to pay attention to. Now, how you how you actually turn that into uh, actionable metrics is a different question. Yeah, one one of the uh, reasons that the the, uh, UK, the Royal Navy had to grow so large was because at that time they they did have a worldwide empire that they were uh, having to defend. I guess at least the perception was they had to defend around the world, maybe. So uh, unlike the U.S. day, where we really don't have that same sort of pressure to have a large navy. Um, is that a reason we, you know, although I always believe we ought to have more ships because you can't, mm-hmm. a ship can only occupy one spot at a time. Um, is that a, a justification perhaps in some people's minds for us having a, a smaller Navy than, than uh, we currently have? Um, no, I mean, I would, I would, I would, I would say that in the current way that, that we are approaching uh what our navy is supposed to do for us is, I think, very similar to how um, the British thought about their navy, right? It, sort of in less self-consciously imperialistic terms, right? obviously. Um, but uh, the the justification for the U.S. Navy is still very much in ways that would have been very familiar to Jackie Fisher and to other Royal Navy authorities in. Uh, around the turn of the last century, which is I mean, they would understand a global force for good, right? That would make sense to to Fisher, right? This this idea that the Navy is there to secure the fruits of the sea and to secure trade. Um, and that's not simply the empire that benefits, but it is the entire world that benefits from the good that the Royal Navy is providing. And I think similarly uh, to the debates that we are having right now about this question of presence versus um, presence versus capability, which are, are roiling the U.S. Navy right now. Uh, I think that these also are, are ones that are very understandable. It's part of the debate between battle cruisers and battleships, right? Whether to build a huge number of battleships for the destruction of uh, the high seas fleet in the North Sea, or to build faster, more flexible battle cruisers that can be deployed around the world to solve problems. Um, and so these debates too, I think, are uh, ones that would be fundamentally intelligible to the the debate over what the Royal Navy was supposed to be and supposed to do. And there's a lot of high-powered intellect in that, right? Winston Churchill is a huge part of that debate. And so um, sort of what, what's interesting is that the debate back then was far more public and was far more engaging um, than the debate we have now when so many people just, just can't be bothered to think about naval affairs. I've... I've... Frustrated myself because I have at least another hour's worth of questions that I'm not going to be able to get to. Uh, what a great hour, Rob. And you know, there are lots of things that uh, I, people really ought to get the book. There's some neat stuff here. The, the whole thought concept about 
you know, what if the dreadnought had been a few months delayed? Then the, what would we call this entire new class of ships? There's mm-hmm. the arc of the uh, uh, I, I can't pronounce German, the Scheiswig Holstein, the the Japanese um, Mikasa, and of course my grandfather's ship that he served in during the First World War, the USS Arkansas, and her incredible mm-hmm. arc. But in the book, you have a lot of ships from a lot of nations that many people uh, have probably never heard of that have interesting stories on their own. In the course of researching and putting together the battleship book, what was one of your favorite ships, and whether it was the way she looked or the stories she told that, that you would want to make sure that people, when they get the book, that they, they don't skip by? No, I, what I would wish that people would read, uh, the first chapter they should read is the chapter on the Vribus Unitas, which is the flagship of the Austrian Navy in World War One. And she is particularly interesting because uh, she's a hugely relevant ship for how the empire tried to hold itself together um, at, at sort of the end of its days. But she also has an, an end, which is uh, just remarkable, essentially, um, uh, two Italian frogmen strap, uh, strap uh, a, a, a bomb to her hull. And then uh, I won't ruin it, but hijinks ensue from that point. That, that become really sort of fascinating from the point of view of where we are in the 21st century, having debates about torture and ticking time bombs and uh, these sorts of things. Um, and she was just a, a fascinating ship that had a fascinating, if brief, only about a five-year career, which many of these ships had. Many of these ships had very short careers. That is a great story and also says a lot about the uh... – the generation of people who fought that war as well. And Rob, like I said, this has been a, a very pleasurable hour, and I, I do highly encourage everybody to grab a copy of the Battleship book. Um, it's just a, it's a different approach to the Battleship. It's more of a story-based, and I, I think that makes it very readable. And uh, there are a couple of occasions I'll have people nodding their head. Uh, now that you've got another uh, book headed downrange, what are, what are you working on now that people can look for, Rob? And um, we mentioned that you, you do blog on occasion at Lawyers, Guns, and Money and Information Dissemination. But where else can people uh, look for you if they want to see what Rob is talking about next? Well, there's a there's uh, you know as you as you mentioned uh, the national interest. So I do quite a bit of stuff at the national interest and the diplomat. Um, the the next thing is something that's going to sound really boring. Uh, it's intellectual property and military diffusion. Uh, And so basically I'm looking into how patent law and uh, trade secret law affects the way that that countries innovate militarily and uh, affects the way that uh, military innovations find their way around the globe. There's a battleship angle to it. Um, There's a lot of other interesting angles to it. It sounds far more boring than it is. It's really some, it's some fascinating stuff. And so that's what, that's what I'm trying to finish up right now. Perfect. Well, I'm really looking forward to it, Rob. And, and thanks again for taking an hour plus uh, this afternoon to talk to us. And we, we hope you have a great, great summer. All right. Well, thank you. And thank you guys for having me. Yeah, thank you, Rob. And thank you very much for joining us for another edition of MidRats. And I hope everybody has a, a safe uh, Memorial Day weekend as we kick off the summer of 2016. Until we see you next time, cheers. Maloney wants to marry me, and so leave the strand and pick a billy, or you'll be to blame. For love has fairly drove me silly, hoping you're the 
Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.